0: This is the Music Therapy Chronicles Year in Review series for 2020. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful holiday season, no matter what that might look like. Um, It's likely a little untraditional this year, but I hope you are enjoying whatever you're doing to celebrate the holidays this season, and I hope you enjoy this mini-series I've put together to finish out what has been quite a year, (laughs) I think we can all agree. So this year in review series is designed to be exactly what it sounds like. Um, I'm the type of person who loves a good reflection period and then goal setting for the future. And that's not to say that we necessarily need to set big goals moving forward into 2021, I acknowledge that everyone is in a very different place in life right now. And for many of us, just getting to 2021 is an accomplishment. And, um, even for say the goal of giving yourself grace with whatever comes at you and how you handle that situation. Um, yeah, that's an accomplishment in itself. So, My vision for this mini-series is to obviously listen back to some clips of episodes from this past year, Um, and when I was listening back to them and putting clips together for this episode, it was really interesting to think back to when I had these conversations initially, um, what was going through my head then versus what's going through my head now, How my thinking has changed, how my understanding of things has changed, how my perspective has changed. And I took different things away from each episode than what was initially salient when I had the conversation the first time. So I hope that for you, listening back to these episodes provides a similar reflective experience where you notice how much you have grown. And perhaps you want to go back and listen to the entire episode. Um, or maybe you don't, maybe you're ready to move on to something else, but as far as goal setting, hopefully you will take away something new from these conversation clips and can think of a way to apply it in 2021. And again, it doesn't always have to be about goals. We're all getting through life right now, but if that's something you feel called to do, I hope this series helps you in, um, in doing that. So the episodes in this series are not presented in any particular order, Um, they just kind of fell into place as I created this mini-series. So this particular episode features um, snippets from the conversations I had with John Moon, Fleur Hughes, Stephanie Lovell, Bonnie Haupt, Martina Bingham, Um, Yeah, and that's all in this episode. So in between each snippet, you'll hear um, a little musical break. I invite you to pause this episode at that time and maybe do some reflection or maybe check out the show notes from that particular guest to dive deeper into what they're saying. The full length episodes for each of these guests will be linked in the show notes so you can of course find them there and listen back to these episodes in their entirety maybe you'll find like i did you learn something different listening back to it the second time as always if you're enjoying the show please remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode please consider leaving us a review so that more people can find this type of content You can follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles on all the platforms. And uh, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Oh, and we have a newsletter. So if you have not signed up for the newsletter, please do that. You will get an exclusive self-care episode with some downloads. And you'll be the first to know about some exciting projects that I've been collaborating on. All right. I hope you enjoy this year interview twenty twenty mini series. I have a lot more self reliance when it is just you.
1: Yes, and that's something that, that I've talked with my interns about is. Um, I love that y'all are doing groups together, but I also need to make sure that y'all are going to be good to do it on your own when you get out of this internship. Mm -hmm.
0: So what other advice would you have for interns at large? Um,
1: For the interns? I think just know that during this six month period or whatever this, this internship uh, time period is, um, do the most, like try, try things, see if they work. This is your last experience with somebody um, who's supervising and can give you feedback. And this is the time to experiment and just try new things. Um, I tell my interns, I don't want to feel like I just threw you in the deep end without any uh, floaties. But (laughs) at the same time, I want you to jump in as soon as possible so that you can get the most out of this experience. You're here for a limited amount of time. So, Let's go for it.
0: Yeah, oh, I like that a lot. And what would you tell to other internship providers?
1: Um, I was really intimidated at first starting an internship. I knew it, I was very passionate about it because at least in Georgia, we don't have uh, many internship sites available. And so I was very, um, very much for creating a an internship. I knew that that was important for our field, um, but I was like, I'm only, you know, two and a half, three years out of my internship, and, um, you know what what do I have to offer for these interns? Um, but I have a lot to offer. I have found um, not to pat myself on the back, but I think all of us have um, our own unique perspective of music therapy and something to share. Uh, with students that are about to enter the workforce and they get to shadow up underneath you and learn how you do music therapy. Also create for themselves, you know, what they want to do with music therapy.
2: ...well-being, um, and, you know, a big word that kept on coming back to me the whole time um, is this word of interconnectedness and thinking, you know, how we all interconnected, but really also how music connects all of us. And um, so, you know, in my private practice, um, I, I work with many different people from many different populations, um, men and women, but, you know, from the Middle East, from Africa, from Asia, uh, indigenous people, and you know the one thing as well I will say is I'm always painfully aware you know I, I'm a European woman, but you know how am I perceived? Mm. And often you know it's it's there've been tough conversations around colonialism. There've been conversations around you know when people talk about when they have to leave their country to go somewhere else. You know I've I've immigrated twice. Um, I know to a certain extent how that feels like having to restart again, the pressures and the burdens and stuff that you, you you have to deal with going through that. But I also find my own lived experiences have certainly informed me to become a better therapist, as well as sometimes having those I sort of you know I call them uncomfortable truths, those uncomfortable truth conversations that you do have with your clients, and um, you know having supervision and being able to reflect on that again, only makes my work sort of richer. Yeah.
0: I guess I'll go here first. So for those of us who haven't immigrated and maybe are working with these populations but aren't able to sympathize and empathize ourselves, mm-hmm. what advice or experiences would you share with them or something to better inform their practice?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd... I'd say, you know, for me, uh, being culturally informed, it, it means, you know, practicing sort of with a sense of humility and openness.
0: Mm.
2: And I'd say, you know, really think about stepping into the worldview of your client. You know, where are they coming from? What is the, you know, sort of the baggage that they're bringing into the session? And really sort of understand um, what it means to listen. And even if someone that isn't able to to speak the language, you know, you can certainly hear with an improvisation, within song choices, and, um, you know, and, and observing your clients, sort of, where they're at.
0: Anything I think above 10 is giant. So tell yes. us about your crowd control strategies <laughs> and how you use the music specifically to transition, maintain the attention of the group, all that good stuff?
3: Yeah. Well, my my first goal is always, always to get their eyes on me. And so I have a lot of strategies for doing that. And one of the ways that I, that one of my strategies is is genuinely my my classes are very, very quiet. And if they want to be able to hear the music, they really need to be quite quiet themselves. And this has, um, evolved over time because I think initially I tried to meet them at their volume level. Um, but I keep my guitar really quiet. I keep my voice very quiet and then I can strategically choose when to bring that volume up and when to bring that ar- arousal level up. Um, but I do a lot of, um, musical cues. I do so many cadences and, you know, it, the way that I end my songs are very strategic. Um, just about every movement song ends in stretching, you know, a verse about stretching, a verse about yawning, a verse about wiggling eyebrows, which makes them really confused and makes them really focus for a minute and quiet down, um, has them, you know, touching their toes or reaching to the ceiling or acting like a sloth or acting like a turtle. You know, I have all these kind of tricks that I use at the end of my songs where I just kind of modify the very end of them, and then the end is often a cadence of "sit down" or you know something like that 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 pulls their attention back in and helps me transition to the next thing. Or sometimes I just don't even really end the songs, and I just go straight into the next thing. Um, one of my most simple songs is one of my most useful, um, and it's called "Walk, Walk, Walk." And it literally, it's just acapella. It literally just goes, we're going to walk, 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 and stop. We're going to walk, 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 and stop. Turn around, reach up, reach down. We're going to walk, 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 and stop. And that is all that that song is. And at the end of lots of movement songs, I I will often go straight into that one. And then the one, you know, we'll either tiptoe, we're going to tip, 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 tiptoe, or tiptoe, tiptoe, stop, or we're going to act like a sloth and stop, you know, something like that where I can... Um, Have them standing and have them still doing movement, but uh, transition them to something quieter with their body. So I call those transitional movement songs. I think I maybe made that up, but um, kind of like going from an active movement song to a transitional movement song to sitting down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like those a lot. So what about if you, let me gather my thought here. You've transitioned from this movement song and you've gotten them to sit down and what do you do usually next for your arousal level um, wave, your bell curve, whatever you call it? What do you, how do you usually plan your session from
4: there?
3: Well, so I typically start the session with new songs while I have their fresh attention um, and While I have their fresh attention, we do like a couple of new songs or a new book, music book or something like that. Um, I've been using a lot of music books recently and really love those. And then when they're kind of, you know, I just kind of keep an eye on them. And when they're ready to move, when their attention is, is leaving and elsewhere, then that's when we stand up and we sometimes do two movement songs or one active movement song, one transitional movement song. Sometimes we do two active movement songs and a transitional movement song. And then usually after that point, um, I will introduce something like an instrument. Um, and I have kind of some specific ways. Um, I don't have like sets of 25 instruments, you know, so I, we don't do a lot where like kids are each get an instrument. A couple of classrooms have bells and things like that. Um, but I don't even use those very often because they can get so loud and overwhelming quickly. Um, so we, I have this routine that I have worked worked on with the kids, where we have um, we have this very specific routine, and it's all musical cues, and it's how we pass instruments around a circle. And usually, that's really good after they've moved a little bit, and then their by their bodies quiet down and they're sitting down. Um, so. For example, I'll get out the ukulele or something like that. I'll kind of show them how they hold it against their belly button and how they strum it, and then we'll start passing it around the circle and their their cue is when the music starts, their turn stops and when the music stops, their turn stops and they pass it to a friend. And they learn this over the first couple of weeks as I kind of walk around with them and show it show them how it works. And then I play a chord progression on my guitar with a really clear ending cadence and no verbal instructions at all. And then when the music stops, you know, it takes them a second to process it. And then they are able to pass it to their, their friend. And if they don't get it, if they don't hear the stop, then I will give them a more clear musical cadence and a more clear ending. And usually at that point, they will look at me. Um, and notice like if, cause it was a little louder or cause it was a little bit more of an obvious cadence, it had like a five, then a five, seven, then a one or something like that. Um, and, um, and then if that point, if they're not quite understanding, then it's most likely their neighbor's going to be like, Hey, pass the instrument. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it works really well. Um, and it's, it's a routine that we have built up that, that it's, it's pretty amazing at how the whole group will wait quietly while an instrument is passed around the group. Sometimes when we get to like, you know, kid 18, like I speed up a little bit, you know, (laughs) I, I, shorten my chord progression or I shorten whatever I'm doing. Um, sometimes if I have a kid that is particularly enthusiastic and loud and I can see the class really, um, Egged on by that, sometimes I'll shorten it a little bit. Um, you know, so so I'm I'm flexible in what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. I think those are really great tips. So I recently took your course on music therapy ed. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And the the first part maybe was, was like all was like, here have your guitar, here are all these great guitar musical cue things to practice, resources, like it was phenomenal it was one of those things that I wish this is one of the things about music therapy I wish I could have like my textbook that I opened and played music like a birthday card you know yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so what what of those would you like to share with the listeners because I know I learned so much from that
3: oh it's been a while I recorded those over a year ago let me think um um I'm glad you like that course thank you for taking it um
0: could be anything that comes to mind. It doesn't just have to be from the course, but that—that's what sparked my interest. of like, I—I'll stall while you think. So I went to <laughs> um, a an internship concurrent session while I was a student at a conference, and the person. Um, chooses the interns for season's hospice and he said i love interns from berkeley because they are so musical he's like i don't know what you guys do but you are so musical and this that and the other thing and when i was taking your course and heard you were from berkeley and i thought this is what he meant like these, oh. these are things that must be ingrained into you that we're probably just glazed over and here I am, you know, not learning them for the first time, but finally grasping like, Oh, Mm. this is the clinical application of what they're talking
4: about.
3: Oh, interesting. Oh, that's really cool. I, I have noticed that, um, you know, there are a couple of professors and, um, practicum supervisors and things at Berkeley where this this is like, this is their bread and butter and they are like masters at these musical cues and, um, My internship supervisor, uh, Lori Kubitschek from Massachusetts General Hospital, I mean, her, watching her sessions are just mind blowing. She's just brilliant musically. Um, and, and it's these musical cadences, um, and something that she taught me actually that's in the course that she really, really turned me into a believer is, uh, leading with your voice, um. I I remember my first day of my internship. My, you know, I came in and I was supposed to bring a hello song, and I brought a hello song and I worked really hard on it because I'm an overachiever, (laughs) and I worked really hard on it. I was really proud of it, and and she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. She's like, your guitar is so loud, like because I was like, I'm gonna play. I'm confident. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in there, you know, and 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 she really taught me that your voice is really the most powerful thing that you can use and your guitar is this very um useful uh structural harmonic support for what you're doing um with your voice and how you're leading with your voice so something she taught me that's maybe a little bit more like concrete leading with your voice is like this just magical thing of ah and just hanging out there ah um, and eliciting some kind of response and landing. Uh, uh, uh. And so you can imagine like a kid, their arm is raised and you've got the, the vocal musical cue of uh, and you watch their hand. And when their hand hits the drum is when you kind of land um, with your voice. And then you can reinforce that with your guitar by having, you know, the five one or something like that and having the And, you know, and stopping your guitar, like, like the stopping the sound on your guitar is such a powerful tool, because it totally amplifies whatever you're doing musically. Um, And also, again, it just, it has the ability to like capture attention and draw attention in and have that kid, you know, look at you. Yeah, that was a great one.
0: And I can imagine how that would be so much more effective in a group of 20 children um, where you're trying not to overpower their voice to get their attention. it's, mm-hmm. it's something more subtle that you could do mm-hmm.
3: yeah yeah and I have really I have really taken that you know guitar volume thing to heart where um where it really doesn't need to be loud it it needs to be, you know, in my in my opinion, it needs to be very clear as far as like um, matching your music to your lyrics like if you say stop in your lyrics you know obviously not only do you stop what you're doing on the guitar but you mute it you know um it needs to be really reinforcing to the song and the goal and the objective and everything um in there um um but it doesn't need to be loud
0: lessons, right?
4: Yes. Yeah, so, so it's you... kind of cool. I've kind of come full circle in a way. And in a way, it's it's cool to see how my interests have always lined up. Because for internship, I was really adamant about, I'm going to work in a school. So even though I wasn't this mu- a music educator and was interested in music therapy, there were still like interests from both that I kept a lot. So I ended up interning at a private school in Omaha for uh, individuals with disabilities. Uh, like all the grades, which was awesome. And I got a ton of experience and really fell in love with that population there. And they had band classes in the school where I really started kind of working towards adaptive lessons too. And so I've kind of have like the best of both worlds where it's like, I'm not a band director, but I do get to teach music sometimes, uh, along with music therapy too. And so sometimes I teach an instrument in therapy, if it meets the the goals that are non-musical, So like with the ukulele, um, you could work on really specific fine motor goals while learning the ukulele. We're just not as focused about learning the ukulele as an end goal, but you can kind of use that learning to work on the other goals. And then in lessons, it's very much working on those performance leisure skill goals, which I find just as beneficial. I think it's so cool to see what you can get out of lessons versus therapy with the musical goals, because I feel like I've found musical goals are just as important as those non-musical goals.
0: Yeah, what an important mindset. Tell me more about that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think music's been so important in my own life and, like, all the performance opportunities I've gotten to have playing with my peers and my friends. And to, to know that, like, some people don't get the same opportunities in school, you know, just for several reasons. Um, I like that in lessons and, and in community groups you can really provide those musical experience where they can make music with their peers too. And it's kind of that like cultural aspect of like just that just that basic of making music with each other. And so that's how I see like the musical goals just as important. And then it's something you have for life. It's a leisure skill you have for life. And whether you're listening or playing, like they could pick up the guitar at Christmas or holidays and play for their family, like down the road, like past you. And it's kind of cool to think about like how almost that generalization over time with the musical goals too.
0: Yeah, what a great way to put that because that can be um, a very controversial thing about, um, you know, we are using music to achieve non-musical goals is a very common phrase, but yeah, I more and more I see that people kind of are saying, well, the musical goals are also important depending on where you're working and who you're working with. So that's awesome mm-hmm. that you are able to, do that in similar but different situations
4: it kind of reminds me of like even music educators when they're like fighting for to have their like band programs in school you can say like oh music helps math music helps their science grades like xyz but at the end of the day there's this argument of like music itself is this beautiful rich thing that everybody deserves why can't that be enough why does it have to help the math score so it almost kind of goes along with that too and like the non-musical goals are, are important obviously because <laughs> that, that's such an exciting thing about music therapy but it's kind of like why stop at the non-musical goals why not have these musical goals too or if it's even more appropriate and that's what somebody's looking for therapeutically it's like oh we can really use learning an instrument in a therapeutic way
0: yeah so how do you market and propose and keep the boundaries between your therapy sessions where the client is learning an instrument versus your specifically adaptive lesson lessons yeah. that wouldn't be Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, so on my services page on my website is probably where I draw like the clearest almost like physical line. There's like a line like individual music there the distinct line on your website Yeah. So I have this really clear line on my website, almost physically. And then so the individual music therapy is on one side and individual adaptive lessons is on the other. And music therapy talks about how you use music therapy for non-musical goals. And I kind of list the domains that I really focus on. And then on the other side, it's like, here are these specific instruments that we work on playing. We can pick more than one, but we're really working towards those instruments. And I even have a blurb in the lesson one specifically where I'm like, this is not music therapy because we're focusing on learning the lesson. But as a music therapist, I will bring like a lot of things that I know to it that maybe not necessarily a traditional music teacher may know. They might, but that I really do have this therapeutic background and training that can allow me to meet an individual at their learning level for that instrument. Like we would meet an individual For their goals in the uh, in the non musical area, and then on top of that, I have a tab that's what is music therapy, and there's just like research and science like all over that one. So just really emphasizing like music therapy is evidence based, it's healthcare, and then music lessons are music lessons. You know, it's not healthcare, but there's that leisure skill we can build. So that's how I try to make that distinction. And then in just phone calls with families, I make it really clear that if we're doing lessons, it's not music therapy and like what the difference is and kind of gauge what would be better for their child and what they're kind of looking for.
5: (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, sure. So the the article that was published was based on my dissertation research. Um, And uh, one of our goals was to define the therapeutic singing voice, particularly in clinical music therapy. Um, So how we did that was to um, watch and listen to music therapists as much as possible. I had four participants in that project. Uh, and I was able to observe, um, 10 to 12 sessions with each one of them. Those are just the ones that I was able to use for data collection. I was able to watch them for months actually before I I started the data collection. Um, so that was really cool because I was able to, you know, get to know those clinicians and I kind of just tagged along with them whenever it was possible and appropriate for me to be in the room. Um, so I watched them for a number of months, and then um, used a system of qualitative research to try and break down what I was seeing. Um, for me, the biggest data intake that we, or that I was working with was voice use. So I broke it up into categories that are very, you know, situated in voice pedagogy study. Um, so I had a little quadrant and I talked about um, things related to alignment and um, respiration or breathing. Um, I talked about acoustics and resonance. I talked about, um, physical muscular use as much as I could interpret and, um, like vocal fold level findings. And then I talked about style and articulation. So those were kind of my categories. Um, and I just basically took in a ton of data and then, you know, tried to sort of, um, grapple with what I found and, and find, um, uh, Find consistencies, sorry, across the different participants. But the great thing about having kind of a, obviously, it's a little bit of a limitation, right? Having a small participant group. But the great thing about it was that I was able to get into a lot of detail and I made profiles for each of them uh, and really, you know, sort of worked with, um, you know, personal details and how they work in their sessions and the kinds of interventions that they're using. Um, and it was just, that was fantastic. That was kind of my favorite part of it. And actually, unfortunately, that's the part that I'm not able to share very often because, um, you know, there's always a time limitation and, and those kind of details are just not, we don't have time for them most of the time in a presentation and even in the paper that it was cut pretty short. Um, but yeah, so I was able to do that. And then from there we did a second level of, uh, data analysis where, um, we looked for those, you know, consistent, Um, consistent voice qualities across uh, all four participants. And that's how I looked for, um, I I looked to try and put together the definition. Um, From there, actually, the the next layer was talking about implications. So for me, um, the point of the research is to be able to contribute a little bit from the voice education end of things, right? So we want to be able to make recommendations for voice teachers and talk about how we might be able to better serve music therapy students in the voice studio. Um, so that really is my talking point. And when I present this to voice teachers, I spend the majority of my time talking about that. Introducing, for many of them, they actually do need to know what music therapy is um, and what voice use m- may look like in a clinical setting. Um, making that differentiation between um, clinical-based singing and performance-based singing is uh, seems to be pretty important. Uh, And then from there, talking about practical application. So the practical application is, if we're defining it in this way, what are some of the things that we can do to, um, you know, to teach these students uh, to um, accommodate your unique needs and the needs of what you're preparing to do professionally? Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's what the paper is about in a nutshell. Um, we're actually working on a continuation project now, which is just very similar, but much larger in scope. Um, so I'm hoping to be able to add to and refine the, both the definition and the teaching from there.
0: That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to that.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, that's not just me, actually, I'm working with two brilliant music therapists that are, um, you know that'll contribute tons to the project. So that's going to be great because we'll have different perspectives.
0: <clears throat> awesome. So what are some of those details that you had to maybe minimize in your publication that you can share with us?
5: Sure. Um, the, the details were, um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, so I had four music therapists and they... Um, I mean, some of the details are probably things that are not even terribly extraordinary to you because you are learning about, you know, you're, you are a music therapist and you spend years and years learning about these things. Um, but really just sort of the intricacies of the practice, right? Like what the, what, what the feeling was in the room and what the people, um, what the, the clients, how the clients responded to what each of uh, the, um, my participants, the music therapists were doing vocally. Um, And, you know, some of those, like, some of the really particular things that, say, one of my participants, Cornelia, was her pseudonym, and she would, she used a lot of, like, vocal play and improvisation with um, clients who were children, Um, and so there were a lot of instances of her kind of creating a little musical language or, um, you know, really just waiting accommodating whatever the client needed, but she did that vocally, right? So that might have been by taking the words out of a song and changing the tempo to, um, she, she matched the, the clients. Uh, I remember her matching the tempo of a client's marching, right? So the, the kid's marching around the room and she was singing something on a neutral syllable to accommodate him. And then whenever he, um, you know, expressed you know needing something else she then changed that again it's all those little details that are really just that to me is one of the most unique things about clinical singing is that you have you all have to be just so adaptive and um there's there's a constant uh just the constant kind of evolution of what's going on in the room right because you're singing for the needs of another person rather than you know for your um to give a beautiful performance or to, um, instead of accommodating your own needs, basically you're accommodating someone else's. Um, so yeah, I, sorry, I can't think of, of a lot of specific details right in this moment, but really it, it's the interaction. It was the ways in which these, you know, the music therapists were relating to the person or people in front of them. Yeah. yeah so that was-
0: That made me think of when you're giving a performance, a lot of time it's your interpretation of the music you're given, right? Where we're using our voice, among other things, to create our interpretation of whatever the client's needs are. So they're similar, but you're right, so different in if you don't have that training or that familiarity with music therapy in the practice, it does seem like this very it is an intricate thing, but it, it does seem like this very intricate thing if you were trained to use your voice differently.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's just a different, it's a different focus. It's a different mindset. Um, yeah, we talked about, we, we. Um, I presented as a, a differing perspective uh, a lot of times in presentation, uh, just because we are coming from a different perspective, right? Our Um, In performance and in voice pedagogy, too, because in we're training to train performers, right, when we're um, and even if that's a really casual performance, even if that's a performance just for yourself. Right. If I'm working with the beginning singer and and they just want to be able to, um, you know, be more confident and sound better. Right. Um, Even a performance like that is still pretty in it's that's an internal kind of goal, um, and it, it does have to do with you, right? Of course you're trying to, you know, please your audience, but you do that through kind of a, just a different set of a different trajectory, I suppose, and the way that it's prepared. Um, and just that awareness, I think changes the way that I look at a music therapy student in the voice studio. Um, because I think any good voice teacher is going to be trying to prepare the student for what's coming up next. Right. And a lot of times for us, that's a competition or a jury at the end of the semester, or an audition, or you know, all of those things that we're very familiar with. Um, but we're so not familiar with watching somebody sit in front of, you know, a person who needs help in any, you know, variety of ways and singing for that purpose. It's just it's a really different alignment of um of goals and of of purpose. Yeah, well said.
0: So what are some of the most maybe surprising things you observed in a session or an enlightening thing or something you saw happen with the voice and you were you thought to yourself, well, that's really cool, or I
5: didn't expect that? Yeah, you know, um, this is absolutely not an insult of any kind, but sometimes it's really interesting to watch um, – when something is not beautiful you know and how effective like using your voice in a really non-traditional way can be um, and i've seen that so much with um with clinicians working with children um, just really making all kinds of sounds and i've i find a lot of parallels um in voice training actually because i i say this all the time to particularly to new students Um, that you're going to make all kinds of crazy sounds in here. They're not all supposed to be pretty, you know, and, you know, just go with it, you know, like try the things I'm asking you to try. And then we will kind of, you know, tear it apart later. Um, And so watching music therapists, particularly, particularly with children, you know, with um, different needs, different, you know, possibly um, disabilities or um, whatever it may be responding to, I mean, loud quacking sounds or like growls or, um, (laughs) you know, just actual, you know, yelling, stylized yelling probably, right? Or onomatopoeia, that kind of thing. Um, That just watching those kinds of things be so effective, really that kind of challenges the way that we train the singing voice right um and the voice in general because i suppose that that that's a little bit of a stretch to call it singing right we've called it vocal play in our data analysis um because you're you know they really are using their voices to play um but that uh, watching that is really kind of liberating because we train so often to find beauty within a certain style right that's a little different if you're you're training someone to sing um an operatic aria versus a jazz standard or a musical theater piece or whatever um so those standards are different right but there there are um fewer rules in that music therapy session right and sometimes the things that aren't beautiful are really really effective clinically and of course like everybody that I've watched can sing beautifully as well and I think that especially with that kind of thing. But really, it's just the variety of sounds is really, really cool to watch. And a lot of times that is, you know, just sounding crazy and, um, you know, making a lot of noise. And the physicality of it is incredible, actually rolling around on the ground, right, <laughs> or, or running around a room. Um, it, it's Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So I, I suppose using the voice in those non traditional ways really sticks with me.
0: Yeah, what a great, what a great example. So what advice do you have as a vocal teacher for those of us creating those sounds, doing those non-beautiful things while running around the room and rolling on the floor?
5: (laughs) Uh, I suppose uh, my advice would be really to listen to your body um because the thing is there's not a uh, most of the time i would guess that what you're doing is probably not very damaging to you you know that we make all kinds of sounds every day right that are not you know within the con, uh, the construct of a beautiful sound in western music right um but since you're doing it in a pretty strenuous way and you're doing it every day and um you know it there's a lot of uh, vocal health issues that you might just want to be aware of. Um, listen to your body, right? If your voice feels strained after a session, you may want to evaluate what you were doing and, and see if there's anything you can do to help yourself. Right. Um, if you make a sound and, um, it's really hard for you to produce, then that might be something that could benefit from a little bit of training or just a little bit of, you know, thoughtfulness. Um, so I think knowing your own voice is really, really important. And you don't really have to be a trained singer to do that, right? But that is actually where the training can be helpful. Um, so, you, you know, just knowing what you can do to help yourself in a situation where you need to make a certain sound or you need to sing something that may be a little bit uncomfortable for you. Um, so what are the tools that you can use to make that more efficient, you know, easier and ultimately more healthy? So your body tells you a lot of really important things. And I think that's good to listen to.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned vocal health because it is such an important part of our profession that I think we touch on at times. And it can be really hard to preserve our vocal health because of the needs we need to satisfy all day, every day. I have Mm -hmm. at one of the schools, I go to the music teacher. I'm lucky to have my sessions in her room and she has intense vocal problems like she's she might need surgery soon and I sent her some of our body of research about ways to preserve her vocals and um, keep them maintain their health with what we're doing all day every day so do you have any maintenance advice in general listening to your body totally 110% but say like preventative maintenance or even tips you've used in the past where right before performance you really need something extra
5: yeah yeah um, I think it's important for everybody to have some sort of a routine. Um, and I, that's one of the first things that I try to help a student create, especially a student who is a, a working professional, you know, because it's just not uh, it, it's not reasonable most of the time for a teacher to expect somebody who's, you know, working full time as a voice user to spend an hour practicing every day. We just don't have that kind of time a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's just not the reality of it when you're out working all day. Um, so coming up with a five to ten minute warm up routine and not just warm up, but a way to check in with your voice. Right. So to vocalize and to touch the different parts of your voice. Check in, right? Actually, sort of like dust off the vocal folds in the morning, kind of thing. Um, so to do those things and check in, because if you do something similar every day, then you're checking in with with the same thing, right? So if I'm singing that regular five tone and I start in a similar place every day, I'm going to feel it immediately. Immediately, if something's a little off, right? Or if maybe my voice just feels a little bit heavy that day, or if there's a it's particularly bright that morning, right? Um, I'll feel those things and then I can kind of adjust or at least know what to expect when I walk into my first for me my first session would be a voice lesson right and for you guys you'd walk into that first session with a client and you've already at least like touched in with yourself that morning um checked in with yourself rather um so having a routine that's specific to your voice I think is so important um and you know I we we I have a little process, um something that checks in with the low part of your voice, right? takes you all the way down to the bottom of your range, something that moves you up to the top in a healthy way, you know that where you can you know experiment with stretching out your muscles and um, opening up your opening up the space to create a higher sound. and that you know really sort of moves through the middle of your voice quite a bit, right? So, um, coming up with three to four exercises that you can do in the car. You can do, you know, if you have a little time in you in the office before you walk into the to the clinical space, whatever that is for you, right? A lot of times it's the car. <laughs> um, so, but having something that you can rely on every day is so important. Um, and then, uh, you know, other important parts of vocal health are to, of course, stay hydrated, to have a plan if you're somebody who suffers from allergies or asthma, that kind of thing. I mean, those are terribly common. Um, and that was actually, interestingly enough, I've heard about allergies so much from various music therapists when I've been out, you know, observing and working, um, and so that's a tough one because everybody's different, right? When we teach vocal health to any any singer, any voice user, we go through the effects of um, over the counter medicine on the on the vocal folds and just on the mechanism in general, right? How is that going to affect you? Many of them, you know, dehydrate, and so you have to pair it with a ton of water. Um, but really, finding a solution for you is really important. And everybody's different. So it's one of those things where I can't give you a perfect answer. But you really have to take some time and put thought into it so that you're taking care of yourself as best you can. Um, and for music therapists, we call, it a, we call it dosage in singing, right? This is a conversation that we have pretty often with music educators as well. Um, you're singing with a really high dosage, just meaning that you have to use your voice for long periods of time all day. Um, and typically, you know, however... Five days a week or whatever it is for you um, so being able to you know take a little break and let yourself do a cool-down exercise um, have plenty of water with you right make sure you eat <laughs> all of that stuff affects your voice really it is pretty fickle having an instrument that's inside your body because if you're mistreating your body then your voice will definitely suffer
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you're enjoying this year in review series, feeling perhaps a bit nostalgic um, and also invigorated, inspired, and excited for 2021. Um, I'm excited to have more awesome conversations like this. I am looking forward to having a greater dialogue with you, the listeners, and as I've said, looking forward to some exciting projects that I've been collaborating on. So sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss anything um, regarding that you don't miss any of that news. Also follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles. Please consider... Becoming a part of our Facebook group. And also please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com/slash music therapy chronicles. Patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions. So if there's someone you want to have on the show in 2021, you can let me know by shooting me an email to hello at music And then you can become a patron and ask them all your questions. All right. I hope you have a wonderful rest of 2020 and a beautiful new year.